Well, you can have a seat. My name is Nate. I get to be the pastor here at New City. Glad you are here. Okay, so just to get a few things out of the way, uh, a couple weeks ago I picked Seattle to win, and um, they, of course they lost. Uh, last week I picked the Titans to win, and uh, they lost. And uh, so somebody sent me a text over the course of like the last week and said, would you please, please do not pick the 49ers to win uh, because you have the kiss of death. And so it seems like everybody you pick is, and so I, I am willing to, uh, to sell my fandom. And so if you want to invest in your team's success, I will cheer for the opposite team. Uh, and so we can make sure that you are a winner uh, in the Super Bowl. So hopefully you have a team that you want to root for, or maybe you're just rooting for the chicken wings. All right. So I, uh, that'll happen here in a couple of weeks, but I'm excited to be rooting for for the Super Bowl. All right, there's a Bible study here. Okay, there's a, a study in Daniel. We are in week three of our study. We've been saying all along that the exile narratives like this one, the, the narrative of Daniel, offer us a pattern of life that is worthy of emulation. Uh, in fact, the Bible kind of keeps pointing us that direction, saying think about exile as a way of life so you can navigate life in exile yourself. Uh, Timus and Chester say in their book, Everyday Church, Christians are not strangers because they have moved from their homeland to a new country. They are exiles because their identity has so radically changed that they are no longer at home in their country of birth. And if you're a Christian, you have experienced this sort of phenomenon that you are not at home here. Uh, that your affections lie somewhere else, that God's at work making a new heavens, new earth reality, and that's where you're headed, that's where you're going, and that's where your heart longs for, that you're a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, not this earthly kingdom, and you've experienced this sensation, if you're a Christian, of being more and more detached from the things of this world, because you know you can't serve both God and money, and so you have this sense in which that you have a, a service and a heart and affection that's longing not for the things that are temporary, but it's longing for the things that are eternal. And so if you've had that feeling, you know what it feels like to live in exile. In Hebrews 11, this kind of famous passage about people of faith, uh, there is a there's like description. So how do they live in this faith reality? How do they embrace this faith dynamic? This, how do they end up in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Uh, they, they did it. They took steps of faith because they were looking for uh, a, a reality that wasn't one that was settling here. But they were journeymen, sojourning. They were exiles, not totally belonging here. And this is the attitude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this text have. Uh, in fact, you, you could say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are radically unattached to the comfort and power offered to them. And they are completely uncompromising in offering their worship to anyone other than God. Uh, you see the kind of money passage in verse 16 to 18 uh, of Daniel 3. This is after the decree has been made to bow down and worship this golden statue. Uh, there is a, a furious sort of raging Nebuchadnezzar because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse uh, to, uh, to bow down to this idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, his, their, their faith is in God's capacity to deliver, whether from this furnace or some other way. He's going to deliver them from the king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What you read in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are, are clarity. Clarity of purpose. There's no wavering. There's no, there's no sort of misunderstanding about where they stand. Uh, there's a, a confidence in the truthfulness that they're holding on to. Look, life is not always black and white. There are often times where life is a little gray. But there are absolutely black and white moments in life where something is true and something is not true, where something is right and something is, is not right. Life is full of tensions to hold, but trying to hold a tension that should not be held may end up, may end up compromising your integrity. And what you see here is you see men of integrity who believe something to be true, deeply held belief, and are willing to die for that truth. The truth is Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And that truth is one that they are willing to die for. Look, I think there are some words that are used less frequently than they, than they should be. There, there are words that, are, that have become sort of uh, just, just sort of, they, they faded away into black or, or at least, you know, to the sidelines of our cultural vernacular. Words like honor and duty and integrity authenticity, faithfulness, truthfulness. It's my sense, and I'm not a prophet, but you know, I don't mind speaking prophetically from time to time. I do sense in the culture this sort of, this sort of feeling among younger Christians, younger believers who are looking at older Christians and older believers and going, where is your honor? Where's your authenticity? Where's your integrity? I've made the point in this series that there is a cultural shift that is changing the shape of Christianity in America. It's happening. Uh, it's, it's something that people can feel, they can sense, they, you can put eyes on it. The data is reflecting it. Here's one data point. Those who identify as none are now a larger group than evangelicals and Catholics. It's hard to see on the graph before you, but there are uh, these sort of all kinds of data points. But as of 2018, those who identified as no religious preference are now a larger group than those who identify as evangelical or those who identify as Catholic. Uh, David Kinnaman, in his book, Unchristian, said, what are Christians known for? Outsiders think uh, our moralizing, our condemnation, and our attempt to draw boundaries around everything, uh, even if their, their standards are accurate and biblical, they seem to be all we have to offer. And our lives are poor advertisements for the standards. We have set uh, the game board to register lifestyle points. Then we, <laughs> we are surprised to be trapped by our mistakes. The truth is we have invited the hypocrite image. And I do think that there are many, particularly younger Christians, who are looking at older Christians and saying, I don't know if you believe what you say you believe because your life is not reflecting those realities. I think we must embrace a calling of exile again to live with honor and integrity, to be distinct from Babylon, yet at the same time to live for its blessing and its benefit. Like we have to be able to wrestle through that reality. Like we are distinct and to live with honor and integrity and that distinction at the same time. We're not against, we're for. We are to be loving and caring for Babylon itself. Jeremiah 29.4, this is a guide, guiding passage for those who are in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, in exile, we have to become specialists in being in the world and not of the world, while at the same time maintaining a love for the world. That's a trick. I mean, it's, it's one that requires some, some energy. It requires some, some working out. How can I be in this world but not be of this world, yet at the same time have a tremendous affection for it and seeking its well-being and its good? Jesus prayed for you and me to have this capacity. In John 17, Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world. They're in it. I don't want you taking them out of it. But you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So they're in it, but they're not of it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Build within them integrity and honor and dignity. As, for, as, you, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why? Because God is radically for the world. So how are we to live in these three realities of both being in the world, but yet not of the world, yet at the same time living for the world? Kinnaman argues that this requires a little bit of work. This is from another book that he wrote called Faith for Exiles. He says, we must build our muscles of cultural discernment, the ability to compare the beliefs, values, customs, and creations of the world we live in to those of the world we belong to, the kingdom of God. And once we've made that comparison to anchor our lives, including the use, our use of technology, to the, to the theology, moral, and ethical norms of God's kingdom. We have to figure out, like, what is it that we're going to stand for? What is the truth that we're willing to die for? What are the things that we hold to be most dear? That is the work of the Christian in exile. To be able to identify those things that, that are going to be defining us as distinct and different from the world. Not being against the world, just distinct and different from the world. And at the same time, balancing that love and affection for the cities in which we have been placed. There is a struggle in culture, and the struggle is, is really deep and it's powerful. And people in power uh, have this ability to make that struggle more difficult for all of us. You see, by attaching religious worship to politics, Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to compromise the faith of the exiles. You'll see this plainly in a few, in a few, <laughs> few slides. I think politicians and world leaders have a, a long history of using religion as a means of control, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to do. You'll see in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. In other words, it was 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. It, he set it up uh, on the plain of Dura. No one knows where that is, in the province of Babylon. So he, he creates a religious artifact. And then what he's going to do is he's going to grab every one of his leaders within his government, and he's going to gather them together and he's going to say, bow down before this God that I've created. So the king Nebuchadnezzar was sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and governors, uh, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And so he's weaving together here the, wor the idol worship uh, and, his, and, and, and his and, and political affinity towards him. By the way, any religion that is set up for the purpose of those in power is a counterfeit religion. Any religion that's it's set up to further the purposes of those in power is not a God-honoring religion. Why is he doing this? Well, in Daniel 3, you see that he's setting up this image of gold, 
Why, why this image of gold? Well, last week we studied Daniel chapter 2, where there was a prophecy about these kingdoms that were going to be, it was a, actually a, 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 a sort of a, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted. In the dream, there was this image, it had a gold head, and then in each of the layers beneath that gold head were all a little bit, you know, sort of less valuable and a little bit less sturdy. And the interpretation of the dream was that you are the golden head, but all the kingdoms that come after you are not going to be as good as you. And so Nebuchadnezzar heard that, and he was like settled by it, and I think he thought, hey, I might as well uh, solidify myself as being the one who's the greatest of all the kingdoms that come after me. Uh, you see in Daniel 2, you, O king, are the head of gold. And so he takes this gold statue and he says, I'm going to put this up in front of everybody and I'm going to make them worship it. I want to solidify my legacy. I want everybody to recognize who I am. And what he's doing is he's putting his narcissism on full display. It reminds me of James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, Christianity is not a political weapon for the powerful. It is God's powerful presence for the powerless. And what James says is he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Jesus, our King, our true King, said, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he put on display the ethics and the reality of his kingdom. This is how he's called us to live. Like, I think there are times, like in all of our lives, when we have to be uncompromising in our faith. There, there are certain truths that are just truths that we can't compromise on. Uh, there are moments that are not gray anymore. They're, they are black and white. There was a moment like that in Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles were told not to evangelize and share the gospel. We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. There are some truths worth dying for, and we will preach the gospel even if it means that we're going to put our lives on the line. And you should know this, by the way, American Christian who lives in the safety of America. There are Christians every day around the world who are dying for that truth. They're, they're dying for, for the, the, the very opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. I mean, just this last week, Christianity Today published this headline, Boko Haram executes pastor who turned hostage video into testimony. That's a fiery furnace moment. He's like, you can put me in the fiery furnace, but I'm not going to deny who Christ is. And I'm going to represent him and that truth, because that's a truth worth dying for. See, we must detach ourselves from the attractive yet temporary promises of power and influence in this world. That reminds me of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or despise the one, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, there, there are times in life where you, your allegiance is tested. You know, I think that the compromising of faith is the one, one real key thing that's really challenging Christianity in the contemporary culture. In 2018, Tim Keller wrote this article in the New York Times. It was, how do Christians fit into the two-party system? And he says they don't. Uh, the article reads like this. The Bible shows, uh, shows believers as holding important posts in pagan government. Think of Joseph and Daniel, like we're studying right now, in the Old Testament. 
Christians should be involved politically as a way uh, of loving our neighbors, whether they believe as we do or not, to work for better public schools or for a justice system not weighted against the poor or to end racial segregation uh, requires political engagement. Christians have done these things in the past and should continue to do so. But then he highlights kind of the unique sort of space that we are in in American culture and society. He said, Christians these days cannot allow the church to be fully identified with any political party uh, is the problem of what the British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. Increasingly, political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you do not embrace all of their approved positions. That's the real challenge that Christians find themselves in. This emphasis on package deals puts pressure on Christians in politics. The historical Christian position on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. In other words, you find yourself at, at times in politics as a Christian with these sort of moments where you're living in the gray, and if you're not careful, you start compromising a little bit too much. And there are things that we just shouldn't be compromising on. And if, if, if the, the rules of engagement require you to compromise on things that God would not have you compromise on, then you need to change the game that you're playing. So as exiles become more unattached to earthbound things, I think they find strength to be more uncompromising in their worship. Recently, an article was written in Christianity Today, that it was actually this last week, more non-evangelicals are calling themselves born again. And the article sort of begins to sort of process this. I've seen this process in other places, uh, this data point, that the word evangelical now is being attached so often to politics that young, younger Christians are going, I don't know if I like that title. I don't know if I want to hold on to that. And so they're looking for some language, and, and the language isn't yet settled, uh, but people are thinking through, what, it, what am I going to identify with? Born-again Christian, that was a good one. I'll, I'll hold on to that one for a little while, and let's see how long that lasts. And what's happening is people are trying to find out where are they in the current cultural place. Uh, what Setzer recognized in Christians in the Age of Outrage, he said that nominals are becoming the nuns. That rise of the nuns we talked about, it's really what's happening is people who are nominal Christians are going, uh, the, the, the pain of being a Christian is too much now. Uh, if you think about it, in the past, in, in American history, there was a tremendous amount of cultural pressure to be a Christian, and there was also a tremendous amount of cultural, or a, a cultural benefit to, to saying you were a Christian. But what's happening in, in the current sort of American climate is that, is that the, the benefit to saying that you're a Christian is decreasing and the pressure not to be a Christian is increasing. And so people are like, I'm tapping out, I'll just be none. And, and as they become nuns, their mindset is more aligned with secular-minded people and they have less affinity with the avowed relig uh, avowedly religious. At the same time, and this is the important note, the percentage of devout has remained relatively stable. That one thing that's interesting is those people who, who have confessing faith, who are regular attenders of church, who have evidence of reading the Bible and praying and living out their faith in everyday life, and they, they have been putting that on display, that number, that percentage of people isn't really going up and down. It's not fluctuating. But the rise of the nuns has to do with like this nominal Christian thing, this societal sort of shift and change. And I think what's, what's happening is that shift, that change, has younger Christians looking out into the world and they're saying, hey, where are the words like honor and duty? Like, who's living honorably? Where, who are the people who are, who, who, are, who are living with, like, a sense of obligation to God first and foremost, living with integrity? Where are, where are the older Christians living with authenticity and faithfulness and truthfulness? 
We're the people embracing the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to say, but if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to deny that we, we worship God and God alone. So throw us in the furnace if you want to. Like, where does that resolve within Christianity? See, when the heat is on, how do you find the strength to be faithful? That's the real question. Look and see how the heat was turned on, Daniel 3. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And so I think the heat is turned up here in uh, three distinct ways. And one of those is the heat is turned up by the pressure of authority. Here you have a ruler, a powerful man, commanding those who are government officials to bow down and worship an idol that he just made. He just created. Everybody knows it. He just set it up. See, the invitation to worship the image was not exclusive. It, it, would, it would have been easy to rationalize a compromised response to keep their jobs. Think about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just recently been promoted to a pretty high position in Babylon. And they could have said, you know what, he's not saying that we can't have our God. He's just saying that we can have, you know, just bow down and worship this God too, in addition to. And they could have easily rationalized a response that was a little bit more gray and not quite as black and white. They could have just made a little compromise to keep their jobs. And by the way, they had pretty nice jobs. You see in Daniel 2, 49, the promotion, Daniel made a request of the king that he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so here these guys are at now leadership position within Babylon, they have a lot to lose economically. They have a lot to lose in terms of their physical well-being. They have a lot to lose. A lot is on the line. And it would have been easy to say, you know what, we've got a pretty nice life right now. We've got great jobs. We've got security. The king likes us. Let's just, let's just compromise a little bit. We'll bow down and worship this idol. We'll keep our own private worship thing. We'll have a public life and a private life. And what we do in our public life will be separate from what we do with our private life. And we'll, we'll make it work. Which made me think about this question for you. How, how many rationalized compromises are you away from faithfulness? I mean, it's not unusual to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Many of us have been in situations where people in authority above us have asked us to do things that were unethical, that were out of bounds, that were not in areas of gray, but they were areas of black and white. And there was a lot on the line for some of us. A job, financial security, your own well-being, your own ego, success. I think the, the three ways the heat's turned up include the heat is turned up by the pressure of authority. But the heat is also turned up by the pressure of conformity. Dale Davis says, in his commentary, commentary says, just like that, the praise band plays and the crowd gets its backsides in the air and its noses in the sand and enjoys job security. They felt they had no choice. They had to do it. 
there is a tremendous invisible coercion that comes from being among a whole mob of flattened worshipers. Which kind of begs the question of you and me, by the way. How many mistakes have you made in your life because you wanted to impress the wrong people? The pressure of conformity. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is justifying it. I don't want to stick out. I don't want to be, I don't want to go into that fiery furnace of rejection. Uh, I fear that most of all. I mean, how many, I mean, I, that's for me, that's personal, all right? I fear rejection of, of all of my fears. That's one of my big ones. Boy, how easy it is to just not want to be rejected and say, you know what, I'll just make this compromise. By the way, having friends in exile is paramount to faithfulness. It's important to note that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are together on this. In fact, when Daniel gets in trouble in Daniel 2, and he makes a promise to the king that he's going to interpret this dream, and he's going to also reveal the dream itself, what does he do? He goes to his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they begin a prayer service. And he goes to his friends, his, his buddies. Uh, there are three ways, I think, the heat's turned up. One here is the pressure of authority. The other is the pressure of conformity. And lastly, the pressure of integrity. Listen to Daniel 3, 13 and following. The Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought because they had refused. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the, I mean, uh, uh, the, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? By the way, that question is the real question of the text. And who is the God who will deliver? Because there is a God who delivers. Look, to, to live with honor in exile, we have to maintain the right focus and the proper perspective. I think it would be easy at this particular moment to be focused on the fiery furnace. We go, oh man, look at that, you know? Like for me, it would be easy to focus on rejection. It would be easy to focus on, you know, the, the lost opportunity. It'd be easy to focus on the, whatever your fiery furnace is, to have that be your focus. See, fiery furnaces will motivate you with fear and anxiety to compromise your integrity, to conform to the pattern of the world, and to get... And to give in to ungodly authority. What's interesting to me is that the focus of this text is the contrast between a powerless and made-up God and the powerful and living God. It is clearly the contrast of this text. Uh, the question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, is being answered in the way that this text is written. And so, yeah, it would be easy to focus on the fiery furnace. It would be easy for that to be your focus. It would also be easy to, to focus on the quickest way to make the pain go away. Like, how do I just make this? You can imagine like, a, a side huddle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going, hey, let's go over here. Let's kind of huddle up. Look, he's a narcissist. It's obvious that he's a narcissist. Let's just satisfy his ego and get, over with, get this over with and get on with our everyday lives. Like, this will, this will pass like all of his other narcissistic fantasies do. Like, let's just satisfy his narcissism and move on. But the, this text is providing us perspective. What it's doing is pulling back the curtain 
letting us see in just to just how silly earthly power is as compared to the passing power of God. Dale Davis in this commentary points it out, and when you see it, it's just like the lights go on as you read this text. He says, it seems clear that the narrative speaks in a mocking manner that a writer has dipped his pen in the ink of sarcasm. And as you read Daniel 3, one of the things that you could do as a kind of a, as a, as a, as a tool to sort of see this is take your pen, take a highlighter, uh, take your pen and underline, take a highlighter and highlight every time, all the nine times, the passage says set up or made. Nebuchadnezzar made. Nebuchadnezzar set up. Nebuchadnezzar put together all this pomp and circumstance. This idol is made up. This is a figment of his imagination. This thing has no power. It reminds you, by the way, of Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears and do not hear, noses that do not smell. They have hands that do not feel, feet that do not walk, and and they do not make a, a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And Dale Davis looks at this passage. He says, even look at the repetition of all the instruments. The writer is probably mocking as well when he describes all the pomp of the occasion. He seems to tell the story with such deliberate repetition. By the way, he writes up the story, the writer turns the pomp into pomposity and coats the dignity with derision. The occasion is clearly impressive, yet in the writer's hand, subversively ludicrous. In other words, he's saying, this idol worship thing is such a fantasy of a man who perceives that he has power when he really doesn't. God has power. He has real power, like delivering power, like saving power. You see, when the heat is on, how do you find the strength to be faithful? You focus on God with a perspective of the saving power. I'm reminded of Romans 8.37. This is a promise for you and for me as Christians. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We focus on God with a perspective of the saving power, and we serve God with a sense of honor and duty, putting your hope in his capacity and character. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, be be it known to you, we have honor, we have integrity, and we will not turn our back on our God. We will stand for what's right, and we will be uncompromising in our faith. But we can't always know what God will do in any given circumstance. But we can worship Him because we know what kind of God He is. Just confess with the psalmist. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego care more about the integrity of their worship than they do about their own physical security. They're like, no, this, this God we serve, he's, he's good, and we can trust him, and he's sovereign. He's not predictable. He doesn't do what we want him to do all the time. But he's good, and he's sovereign. But if not, be it known to you, we're not caving. 
We're not giving in. We will serve him with integrity. Walter Luthi says that there are three men who do not that, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle of the confessing church. That there were that they were not devoured by fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them, the real miracle would have happened just the same. That their faith had been put on display. It always surprises me when I when I meet Christians who are in context where they're persecuted for their faith. And it just seems like their faith is so real and has so much resolve and so there's so much integrity in the way that they follow Jesus. And sometimes you, you could get it wrong and think that, that somehow they came up with that faith on their own and it's just a matter of grit and grind. And that is a part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation. That God gifts faith. He gives courage. And when you pray for him for faithfulness and courage, he provides that for you. The ability to face the challenges in your workplace, the challenges in your marriage, the challenges in your parenting, the challenges in your life, like that's something God provides. Focus on God and his power. Serve God with a sense of honor and duty. Release yourself from the bondage of conformity and embrace Christ and his community. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he threw them in the fiery furnace, cranked it up super hot. He looks into the fiery furnace and is astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth is like the son of of the gods. He may be right on the money. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the, the, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over, the, over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I think it's important at this point to note that Jesus did not rescue them from the fire. He delivered them from within the fire. He could have easily have stopped Nebuchadnezzar's hand and said, don't, you can't do it, and stricken him down. And he didn't do that. They were thrown into the fire, and he met them in the fire. By the way, no matter what your fiery trial looks like, you can know that Jesus is there with you. That's his promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Bible proclaims. And so Jesus is with you wherever you go, even into your fiery trials. And you should know that he has delivered you. If you're a Christian, he has delivered you. Jesus is the only God who can, by the way, deliver you from the ultimate fire. And he has. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 25, I see four men unbound walking in the midst because God met them in the fire as a deliverer. That's what God does for you and me. He meets you in the fire as a deliverer. Nebuchadnezzar has a response of praise in verse 28. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trust him. And set aside the king's command 
and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, typical narcissistic totalitarian leader speak, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You should know that Jesus went into the fire for you. He did. He went into the fire for you. You, you and I have this sort of thing in, in our life. It's a reality that we all know that we can't break. It's a power, actually, in our life that we can't break. It's the power of sin. Sin con- condemns us. That's what it does. That's why you feel guilt and shame. That's why you spend so much time and energy trying to prove your worth and value by what you do in your life. Because you're trying to work off the debt that you're carrying around. And this debt that you're carrying around, Jesus said, I'm going to take that debt, the written record of wrongs that you've committed, I'm going to nail it to the cross. In other words, I'm going to go through the fire for you. And then he was buried in the tomb and he rose again, he conquered sin and death, and he says, you know what, I want you to raise with me. He gave us this wonderful imagery of baptism. So we can, we can experience it just sort of physically, what it means to die to our old self, to bury it away, to rise to new life, to experience the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus went into the fire for you so that you could be raised from the water with Him. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, <laughs> who raised Him from the dead, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision Decision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the good news of the gospel that we can, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can and should be, not to be, radically unattached radically unattached to the comfort and power offered to us in this world. And I think, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we should become completely uncompromising in offering our worship to anyone other than God. You see, I think what happens when you become a person of integrity, particularly when it comes to matters of your faith, trusting in God, receiving faith as a gift from Him, uh, that witness gets noticed. And their integrity of their witness, it was noticed and rewarded. And Daniel 3 ends this way, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Think about that. They denied the king at the beginning of the chapter and they're promoted at the end. In other words, they risked everything in integrity and God showed up in an abundance of favor. But seek the welfare of the city, we're reminded, where I sent you into exile. Pray the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. This may be an unsexy sort of closing, but I do think it's worthy of noting. You may not, you may not think that the integrity of your witness, meaning the truthfulness of, uh, the faithfulness of your walk, the truthfulness of your, of your words, The way that you serve God with honor and duty is perhaps one of the greatest things you can do with your life. 
there is no greater good I, I, I can think of that you can offer the world than a faithful life lived for God and the service of others. Unattached and uncompromising. I, I believe we're at a moment in American history where there's an unsettledness sort of at work in the American spirit, the American consciousness. Kind of my fear about this, and I didn't write this in my notes, so you get this as free of charge. It's half-baked, so who knows what's going to happen. Um, I do feel like there's going to be a rise of fundamentalism, but it's not going to be Christian fundamentalism. And you can already see the evidence of that around the world. Because people can't live long without truth. And what's happening is people are looking around and they're going, where is a truth that I can hold on to? And people in your workplace are going, where is the person of integrity? Where's the person of faithfulness? People in your family are looking for the testimony of your life. And by the way, is the testimony of your life that God is preeminent and most valuable to you? And is the testimony of your life that he has sent you into this world to love it and to care for it? Because that's ultimately the only testimony that matters. And I think that's what this text calls us to. So Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom in applying this. I, um, I'm stricken about how uh, attached I am personally <laughs> to the things and comfort and power and position and uh, credit and fame and you know just all the stupid stuff of this world. It is it is so easy to be trapped by the service of of things and stuff and and not to be you know living wholeheartedly a hundred percent for you. I, I know there's nothing greater in the world that I can give my life to than than the service of you. And so I pray that you would give me integrity. Uh, give me faithfulness. Help me to have the faith that you gave to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Help me to possess that kind of courage to live for you in every context of my life, uncompromising. Uh, I pray that you would help that to be a testimony of our church, that we would be real, authentic, able to admit our failures and our faults, not legalistic, but also people of integrity and, and truthful and honorable, living lives worthy of the calling. Help us, Father, uh, with the gift of your spirit. I pray that you'd help us uh, to be bold and courageous. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.